Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 7. We're going to be focusing on a pretty large section today. We're going to look at 17 to 37. It's 20 verses. Or Spencer hat. There you are. You gave me trouble when I announced that on Facebook. He said, is there going to be an intermission? <laughs> no. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad to be with you today, and we're just going to continue to study the book of Acts as we have been. For several weeks now, we've been <clears throat> examining the life ministry and speech or sermon of Stephen, uh, just to get you a little bit caught up to speed, and, and most of us are. Uh, we've been tracking with this thing, but Stephen had been brought before the Sanhedrin by Hellenistic Jews uh, and false witnesses. They claimed that he had blasphemed God, Moses, the law, and the temple through his gospel preaching. When asked if the charges were true, he began to uh, defend himself by reciting his knowledge of the scriptures and his knowledge of the things they were accusing him of. Um, as I said a few weeks ago, his defense was really less about getting himself off the hook, but defending the truth claims of Christ and the gospel and whatever the outcome would be, he would be more than willing to endure and deal with, even if that meant death. So in a way, he's sort of sacrificing himself because he knows that those he's speaking before murdered Jesus and have been opposed to the gospel uh, since they first learned of it. And so, very interesting, but he was asked, asked if the charges against him were true, and he began to give a sort of a synopsis or an overview of Israel's history. And um, at the same time that he's giving this overview and telling them and illustrating how he knows and understands Israel's history and God and how God has interacted with Israel and how God is this sovereign redeemer overall redemption, redemptive history, he also reminds the Sanhedrin of Israel's errors. He sort of illustrates those things as he tells the tale. In Acts 7, 1 to 8, Stephen showed them their idolatry. Um, Israel has always been an idolatrous nation, um, just as all people are idolatrous. Um, the religious leaders believed that God was with them uh, because they were the true Jews from the promised land and because they had the law and the temple and the law, the temple, and these past figures like Moses and these forefathers all became sort of idols in a way, if you will. Stephen showed them uh, during that first section, 1 through 8, he showed them that Abraham enjoyed the presence and salvation of God through faith rather than through his nationality or his geographical location or through his possessions. And that was a big struggle for the religious leaders and the Jews of Stephen's day that, you know, we've got all these things, and so that must mean that we're saved and in relationship with God. We're from this particular place. And he very simply showed them that Abraham met with God outside of the promised land and that it was through faith that Abraham, had, Abraham enjoyed the presence and salvation of God. Um, in 7, 9 to 16, which we studied last week, Stephen showed them how Israel's first leaders, the patriarchs, rejected God's chosen and anointed one, Joseph. He showed them how God was with Joseph and how God raised him up to be a world leader in Egypt, regardless of the nations or the patriarchs' opposition to him, rejection. He showed them how God used Joseph to save Israel from a devastating famine that would have obviously destroyed her. Um, having successfully defended himself 
against the charge of blaspheming God. He did that through narrating his understanding of Israel and how God interacted and the things that God did. Um, After successfully illustrating those things and defending himself, he now moves to the second accusation, which was blasphemy of Moses. Uh, He shows just as he reveres God, so also does he honor Moses. Again, in a way, he pleads not guilty. Stephen elucidates that defense by continuing in his historical survey. With that said, our passage for examination this morning will be Acts 17.37. We're going to kind of cover aspects of the Moses narrative, and he's going to build this great defense for how he honored Moses. It's going to be really, really cool. Hopefully you're there in your Bibles. I'll read that section and then pray, and we'll begin to examine it together. 717 to 37. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. We just heard that. Paul read a little blurb of that. And he was brought up for uh, three months in his father's house. And uh, when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Uh, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Uh, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the men who... The man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, forty years had passed. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt, 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Father, as we enter into this time of study, God, I pray that we would be focused, especially me. It's 
It's amazing that even as I preach the living Word of God that I could become distracted by other things or uh, even worse, the thoughts and things that the devil would run through my mind and guard my mind now as I preach your Word, guard our minds as we hear the Word preached, God. May we be sensitive to your Word, Lord. May we yield and submit to the Holy Spirit in this very time cast away with the cares of this life and those things, and uh, may you breathe new life into us through your living word. Oh, that is what we so desperately need, Father, especially me. Lord, take this time to be your own. May we sit as children, humbly listening to you. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, friends, hopefully you're ready to take some notes and things. We're going to kind of work this passage, and we're going to have to tackle some large chunks at a time because it's, it's just a big section. We've got only so much time to cover it, and Lord willing, we, I don't go really long. Let's take a look at uh, 17 through 19. I'll read it. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants uh, so that they would not be kept alive. The time of promise refers to the time when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham That promise was that he would give the land to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. By this particular time, moment, the patriarchs were dead and the people had increased and multiplied in Egypt. The descendants of Abraham enjoyed a prosperous period under the leadership of Joseph and Pharaoh. They had become content in Egypt. They liked Egypt. Egypt. Egypt had a vast number of resources. Um, it was a lush land because of the Nile, and uh, in a way it would probably in that day, because of the famine that was all throughout, Egypt would have been this sort of paradise, if you will, at that time. And so they really enjoyed the blessings that Joseph and Pharaoh brought, and so they became very, very content with their locale, with where they were, and That was part of their problem. They were supposed to return to the promised land. And so God sovereignly orchestrated events that would move Israel out of Egypt. After the deaths of Joseph and Pharaoh, a new king took the throne. The new king was paranoid. Uh, The new king grew more and more concerned with the growing population of Israelites in his homeland. Uh, He began to think to himself that the Israelites might join forces with an enemy, and they had many. He thought that these people who were multiplying in his land might actually join forces with one of those enemies at some point and attempt to bring his kingdom down. The new king persuaded his administration to subject the Israelites to hard labor as a means to oppress and control them. But hard labor failed to curb the Israelites' numerical growth. They continued to have children and expand their families. 
So the new king turned to infanticide. Infanticide is the practice of killing infants or babies. Exodus 1, 15 to 22 is where it's so highly illustrated, and it's a very gruesome thing. Um, we see in that particular passage um, just how the order came down from Pharaoh to kill the newborn boys and to abandon them in these, these various things. According to W. Tarn's historical work on the Hellenistic civilization, um, infanticide was a common method uh, for limiting population growth even at the beginning of the Christian era. And so infanticide was highly practiced throughout the world, more particularly in the Middle East, to control the population, uh, which is haunting uh, that governments would turn to such a a horrible, horrible atrocity to try to keep population down. It kind of reminds me of modern-day China in a way, and I don't know if they execute, you know, infants there. I don't think they do that. Maybe they do, but... They most certainly say that you can only have so many kids, and if you become a lawbreaker there, then they take your children or they arrest you and put you in prison. It's a a horrible thing. But infanticide was very prevalent in, you know, Joseph's day and even up into the Christian era into the first century. Horrible, horrible thing. Now, little did they know, uh, but during this oppression and infanticide, God was about to bring the Israelites a deliverer, one who would rescue them from oppression, one who would rescue them from infanticide, atrocity, these things, one who would rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh, this new king, and bring them to the place that they were supposed to go to and dwell in, the promised land. Look at 20 to 22. At this time, Moses was born, Stephen says, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. The details of Moses' life and ministry Uh, were very well known to the Sanhedrin. So Stephen merely summarizes these details to make his point. In other words, he doesn't illustrate the entire story of Moses because he's preaching this sermon before men who have translated the Word of God in these things and taught these things for centuries and centuries. And so they're perfectly well informed of the storyline. And so he just summarizes certain things. But he's got a particular point that he wants to make towards the end. Sensitive to the accusation that he had blasphemed Moses, Stephen makes a point of praising him, describing him as beautiful in God's sight. Now, if Stephen was a blasphemer of Moses, if he had rejected Moses, if he had opposed him by any stretch of the way, then why would he refer to Moses as beautiful in God's sight? Sight, that very point right there probably raised some eyebrows. You know, he had been preaching this gospel and how the fulfillment of the law that Moses gave, the Mosaic law, had come in Christ. And so the way the religious leaders interpreted that was now the law's not important. We've got to follow this Jesus guy, and we killed him because he was a false prophet. 
So that's how they thought that he was blaspheming. But look at what he says. He says, Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Now, I know that that phrase there, that descriptive phrase of Moses, really got their attention. Now, over the centuries, many fantastic stories had been cooked up about Moses. Uh, Rabbis taught that his beauty at birth lit up the room. It was probably his mother that lit up the room. Ah, you know, right? But literally, when he was born, you know, it was like, this glow came. You know, I've got three kids, and I saw all three of them born. There was no glow. The only glow was, what have you done to me? You know, I mean, that Rachel just peering at me, and it was just this horrific thing. And she had the epidural, but it only takes off the edge. I don't know. If I had one of those, I'd probably, you know, I'd, I'd feel good. But, you know, just this glow. I mean, can you imagine this? You know, when he was born, it just the room filled with this glow of light. You know, they cooked up the story of that. They actually said that he had been born circumcised. <laughs> All right. You know, I mean, this is how special he was, right? There was this glow. He came out. There was no need for a rabbi in eight days to give him the old snipperoonie. He was pre-snipped because he was special. Craziness. Crazy. Josephus wrote that Moses' nurse, which actually was his mother, Moses' nurse carried him down the street. Whenever she carried him down the street, people would stop to stare at him because of this aura, this glow, this special kid, you know, just walking down, you know, and people would be like, you know, just, just glued to him. I mean, these are the things that the rabbis, and even Josephus writes about this. Uh, Josephus also wrote when he, Moses grew up, he, he became the greatest of Egyptian generals and led the victorious campaign in far-off Ethiopia, uh, where he actually married the princess of the land. I, these are things that have been developed over time. I mean, this guy was so highly esteemed that they actually came, they came up with dozens and dozens of things. I couldn't go through all of them. Pre-circumcised, he had this glow you know, he married this amazing queen off in Ethiopia, and, and he was just, you know, he was the man, you know. All of these things had been, these tales had been developed, and, and so what happened was he became so highly exalted above what the Bible actually claims about him, and so very interesting. Now, I'm not sure if uh, Stephen believed these things about Moses or not. I suspect that he didn't, but the rabbis taught these things quite frequently. You know, whenever they talked about Moses, they attached all of those extra-biblical stories and things to him, which just put him at this, you know, level of here he is, and then we've got God here, and then we've got, G-, you know, it, just, it, was just, it was just terrible. So I don't suspect that he believed these things about him. But in any case at all, he refers to him as beautiful in God's sight. The author of Hebrews did the same thing in that passage that Paul read earlier. It's very interesting. So in your mind's eye, you can see now that he's ascribed some notoriety as this beauty to Moses, but on the other side of the room where all these religious leaders are, they've got Moses at a level that's just ridiculous. I mean, he is just like a godlike deliverer and figure. Let's take a look at 23 to 29. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers 
the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Uh, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Stop it. Break it up. What are you doing? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. He pushed him to the side, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And then he said this sort of sarcastic comment, Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 29, At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Even though, interestingly, even though Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's palace, he did not forget about the Hebrews. He remembered his own people. His mother had no doubt instilled this love and concern, this remembrance for them while he was young. His mother was blessed with the opportunity by the sovereign hand of God, by the providential God that we worship, to be his nurse. And so he, she was able to take care of him as a child and teach him about their history and to love God's people in these things. Um, she was the one that probably instilled these things. And in spite of his Egyptian enculturation and programming, his admiration and love for the Lord's people remained. Um, when he turned 40, he got this desire in his heart, if you will, uh, to go down to the labor camps. And I'm sure he did it more than once. But he would go down to these labor camps where they were making these bricks and straw, out of straw and mud and these things. And he would go down there and listen to them and watch them and, and, I guess, care for them to some degree. Um, at one point, he went down and with the intention of showing these people, his people, that he had come to save them. That opportunity uh, to show that he could be their deliverer, that he could be their rescuer, came when he witnessed an Egyptian taskmaster abusing a, one of his brothers, a Hebrew. Moses then intervened and killed the Egyptian and says in the text that he hid his body in the sand. Um, he thought to himself that his act would persuade his brothers, the Hebrews, into believing that he was their deliverer. But the text says that they didn't understand that. Then on the next day when he tried to stop an argument between two of them, they, one of them at least thrust him aside and said, what are you doing? Who made you our boss? Who sent you to be our deliverer? Who, who called you, you, Moses, you son of Pharaoh's house, so to speak, proverbially speaking? Who, who sent you to be our judge? What are you going to do? Are you going to kill me next? I mean, they looked at him and they thought he was a bit of a hothead. He was a, obviously showed that he had the propensity to be violent. I mean, he killed this man and struck him down. Moses realized that his people had failed to receive him as their deliverer. His act of justice created fear and rejection rather than acceptance and support. And then Pharaoh, the new king, heard about what happened. Thinking that Moses was trying to lead an insurrection or something of that nature, he set out to capture and kill him. Moses then fled to the land of Midian where he married and had two sons. MacArthur wrote this. This is interesting. Israel's foolish reaction or rejection of Moses 
served to lengthen their time in bondage by 40 years. MacArthur implies that Moses' actions could have brought the Israelites out of Egypt much earlier if they had only followed Moses' lead. I think I disagree with that statement. It seems to undermine the sovereignty of God in a way, and I don't reject much of what MacArthur says because he's absolutely brilliant. But I don't know if that's true. Obviously, the Israelites didn't obey, and we have to say that that was God's will. But it's interesting what he puts out there because it's a bit provocative. They kept themselves there longer if they had only obeyed. And there is a truth to that, right, in principle, that sometimes when we disobey, it prolongs our suffering. There's no doubt about that. And so interesting. What I like is Harrison's commentary on it a little better. He said this, Seeking an opportunity to intervene on behalf of a Hebrew uh, who was being mistreated by a taskmaster, master, 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 you get the K and you just repeat it right there, taskmaster. He thought, he's speaking of Moses, he thought that this would be a kind of signal for an uprising, which he would be happy to lead. But it was an unrealistic dream, and it became a near disaster for himself when he ended up killing the Egyptian. He had not learned to match bravery with self-control. God was unwilling to entrust the leadership of his people to one who was not yet fit to lead. The evidence for his unfitness lies in the fact that he was not penitent over the murder he had committed, but was back the next day trying to persuade the Hebrews that he was their captain by posing as an intermediary between two of their number who were quarreling the rebuff that he received, plus the awareness that the killing was now public knowledge, determined his next step. That sounds a little more realistic to me, but when you factor in the length of time that Moses was away, 40 years, after he left after killing this person, he was gone for 40 years, and when you consider the deprogramming that took place during that time, how he went from being an educated Egyptian prince to a humble, somewhat even cowardly and dull of speech shepherd. And when I say cowardly, I mean no disrespect, but he certainly doubted God's calling because he was afraid that people would reject him, so it's there. When you consider these things, Harrison's commentary seems to make the most sense. God had a lot of work to do on Moses before using him to bring the people out. As an Egyptian, Moses was proud. He was strong. And he was worldly. He committed murder. God had to break him of those things. He had to transform him into his divine mouthpiece. If you look at the story closer than Stephen has portrayed it, you will see that God was not interested in Moses' muscle and might. This became plain to see when he failed the first time around, when he used his muscle and might to kill someone. God desired to strip Moses of what Egypt had instilled in him. He was interested in humbling Moses and giving him a pastor-shepherd's heart. God was going to use Moses to speak to Pharaoh as a message-bearer rather than as some sort of military leader. When it came time to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, God didn't even exert his power through Moses. He exerted it through his and Aaron's staff and through nature. Exodus 7, 19 to 20, 
8, 5, 9, 22, 10, 12, 10, 21, and 14, 16 all illustrate these things. Whenever you look at how God uh, took action against the Pharaoh's disobedience for not releasing the people, like for instance, when God moved to turn all of the water of Egypt, the land of Egypt, to blood, what did Moses do? Moses was commanded to take his hand and staff and to hold it over the water and then to touch the water with it. God did not say, put out your hand and pick up a big bowl, cup your hands together and hold up the water, and then I'll exert my power through your hands and do this task. No, he did it through his staff. Actually, five of the plagues that were brought were brought through the staff of Aaron. So in a really interesting way, God was going to exert his power through this whole situation and through Moses, but not technically through his own hands or his own giftedness or his own muscle and might. No, God's plan was to use him as a mouthpiece. What did Moses do every time he came before Pharaoh? He spoke. He said, this is what God is warning you of, and by this time tomorrow, so to speak. He would say these things over and over. He was issuing these verbal warnings. So it wasn't about his guns and Navarone. It wasn't about his own giftedness or any of those things whatsoever. God was going to pour through him, if you will, mostly verbally, and then God would summon nature and the animal kingdom, gnats and flies and these things. I mean, he commanded bugs. How interesting. I command bugs all the time. Away from me, spider. They just sit there, right? I mean, I just don't have that power. I don't have that ability. Now, we live over in, in the Davis Park area, and for some reason, there's Japanese cockroaches everywhere over there. Is anyone else? Yeah, you live over there. Are you seeing these things over there? Okay, we're moving over there with you. We've got them everywhere. You know, a lot of times I'll come out to the pool and they're back there doing the backstroke, you know. They're just sunbathing, you know, and, and they're just, they're atrocious and they're nasty and they're gross and they're everywhere and we have the place sprayed all the time and, and so often I curse them away from me and what do they do? Scurry and gather crumbs and whatever they do. We just don't have this power. Moses didn't inherently have it. When Moses took action on his own, what happened? Committed a grievous sin of killing someone. Oh, but they were the Israelites' enemy. Yeah, well, justice was up to God, was it not? He's the judge. It was God's special privilege and right to do what he desired with those people. He wasn't trying to use Moses to do such a thing, I believe. But in any case, God exercised his power through Aaron and Moses' staff. Uh, when you read the story of the Red Sea and the Egyptians are coming in on them, at breakneck speed. And the people are trembling with fear because they feel they have no place to go. What does God command Moses to do? Raise your staff. Aim it over the sea. And then the sea parts. Very, very interesting stuff. Now, after 40 years of deprogramming and transformation, God saw fit to give Moses his calling. Look at 30 to 34. And when I mean deprogramming and transformation, there were a lot of things that Moses had learned through Egyptian culture that he had to unlearn. Forty years as a shepherd would probably do it. When I think of my own life and the process of sanctification and transformation God has in me, if he actually called me to do something in particular and said it's going to be about 40 years, I'm not sure that I would say, okay. I would say, come on. How about 40 days? How about 40 days of purpose, Lord? That'll do the trick, right? Amen. Come on. It worked for Rick Warren. 
Think about that. 40 years? How much of that enculturation had taken place? Was the 40 years due to the amount of enculturation that had taken place? It could be. You know, our society and culture invests in us for all the wrong reasons. It shapes us. Our culture shapes us. When God takes a hold of a life, there is a lot of deprogramming that takes place. Now, regeneration and salvation are an instant thing. But the tendencies and the things that are learned still need to be unlearned. Sanctification takes a lifetime, amen? So much of us, I mean, I tell you, I, I want it tomorrow. Can I just get glory tomorrow? Well, that's death. Okay, well, maybe not tomorrow. Maybe in 35 years? I don't know. Give me a goiter, you know, and take me out. I don't, that was weird. But think of this. I mean, he's taken all this deprogramming that took place. It's just fascinating. He had to go out and, and unlearn those things. And, and more importantly, he had to learn how to love and care for God's sheep. What did he do? He went and worked for his father-in-law, Jethro, who was a shepherd. He became a shepherd. When the sheep went stray, he retrieved them. When the sheep were injured, he anointed them with oil. When the sheep were thirsty, he led them by still waters. When the sheep were hungry, what did Moses do? He did what the God of the universe commanded him to do, to take them to green pastures. He learned to care for the sheep because guess what? In a number of years, he would have to care for God's true sheep, the Israelites, who are just as wayward, who injure themselves, who go astray who do all of these things. So what a tremendous time of transformation he went into. And then God said, that's it. It's like the microwave ding, bing, macaroni's ready. Look at 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. It's like a big tumbleweed burning. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I'm sure it was booming. And then 32, I am the God of your fathers, God said, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off thy sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What Moses had sought and failed to achieve on his own became his by divine appointment at the burning bush. While in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to him from a burning bush. That fire there that was burning in that bush, although not consuming it, but that was burning, represented God. And the Bible says that God is a consuming fire. Fire is purification in the scriptures and things. It symbolizes different things. And so you have this perfect, holy presence and manifestation of God in the flame, the consuming fire which God is. Moses was amazed at what he saw, more particularly the fact that the bush didn't go up in complete flames and was consumed. He drew near to take a closer look. And then he heard the voice of the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This was God's way of renewing the covenant he made with Moses' forefathers. 
When Moses heard his voice, fear came over him. His mother had no doubt taught him about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She educated him. He knew about God's righteous acts and devastating power. He knew about events like the Great Flood and the Tower of Babel and Abraham's victory against the four kings from central Mesopotamia, which was an amazing victory against much larger forces. And he knew about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of these things were carried out by the mighty hand of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when Moses witnessed God and heard God, he trembled in fear. This is the God that did those things. He's speaking to me from this bush that isn't being consumed. How marvelous this is and how fearful it would be to hear the voice of God this way. I've never heard the voice of God this way. Not just audibly on my own and most certainly not in a fireball bush. Very, very interesting stuff playing out. Moses may have also known that seeing the face of God meant certain death. Uh, During the Exodus, he asked God to show him his glory. This was a little later. In Exodus 33.20, God said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so that might have played into his turning away. He saw this bush, he realized it was God, and he turned. He had this great holy fear. And then God spoke a little bit more. He said, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Stephen's employment of this particular text was highly significant because it underscored the truth that God is free to reveal himself wherever he is pleased to do so. And this place was well outside of the so-called holy land. You remember I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The religious leaders from the Sanhedrin had kept God bound to the promised land, that he would never function or operate outside of that promised land or beyond his own people, the Jews. And so Stephen is proving a point here that the holy God, the God who the Sanhedrin supposedly worships, can meet and orchestrate a conversation and and host these things outside of this promised land, outside of the boundaries that they had created. The interesting, the holy ground title that he uses there, he says this is holy ground, or as other translations put it, this holy place, was the special title, he's using it here for Mount Sinai, the place of the burning bush, but it was actually the special title that the religious leaders had given to the temple. Uh, They called the temple holy ground or the holy place. It was not a reference to Mount Sinai to where God had spoken to Moses. It was a reference to the temple and quite frankly it was inconceivable to the Sanhedrin that any other place be called holy ground or the holy place. Only at the temple. The temple is the holy ground place. No other place because that's where God is. By taking this position though the Sanhedrin actually actually rejected their own Scripture, because the original passage in Exodus 3.5 calls the place of the burning bush, Mount Sinai, holy ground. Now, what was it that made this place holy ground? Was it because it was a unique mountain with unique shrubbery and interesting crags and special animals and these things? No, it was just a mountain. What made that place special was the presence of the divine. It was the presence of the holy God. Apart from the presence of the holy God, Sinai was just a mountain. 
It is the divine's touch or presence that sanctifies the person, place, or thing as holy. Apart from him, they are all ordinary and plain. This, too, was a biblical concept that had escaped Stephen's hearers. Their belief was based on the past. At one time, the temple was holy ground because God was there. But God brought about a new way of manifesting His presence here through Jesus. His presence on earth is made manifest in the hearts of those who love Him, His people. His people are His temple on earth. God makes them holy by the blood of His Son so that He may dwell with them and in them. The religious leaders had rejected this new dispensation because they rejected its author and orchestrator, Jesus. They kept claiming that the temple was the one and only holy ground. Stephen shows them through Moses' example that God can go wherever he likes, that he operates outside of the holy land, and that he can sanctify as holy whatever he desires to sanctify as holy, even a mountain in Egypt because that's where Sinai was or is. Matthew Henry made a great comment on this subject. He said, men deceive themselves if they think that God cannot do what he sees to be good anywhere. He can bring his people into a wilderness and there speak comfortably to them. Interestingly, too, the taking off of one's shoes or sandals in holy places actually became a standardized practice. The ancient Jews were especially not permitted to enter a temple or the tabernacle or a holy place with their shoes on. Other religions, such as Islam and Buddhism and others, adopted this practice and still uphold it today. Very interesting. Moses, out of reverent fear, slipped off his sandals, and then God continued to speak. What God says here should encourage each of us greatly. Look at 34. I have surely seen, I love this, might be my favorite verse in this exposition. I dare not attack it with a dry mouth. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. God was tentative to his people's needs. He saw their affliction and he heard their groaning. This throws a monkey wrench into that worthless philosophical idea that God created everything and then removed himself, that he is disconnected from his creation, that he is far removed, which unfortunately is taught even in Christian pulpits. No, God looked at his people with his own eyes. He saw their affliction. He heard them with his own ears. He heard their groaning. God is an intimate God who is close to those who love him. He sees them with his own eyes. He hears them with his own ears. And then it says, I have come down to deliver them. Who was Israel's deliverer? Was it as the Sanhedrin had thought? Moses? No, not in the literal sense. It was God. 
when Moses tried to deliver the people on his own, what happened? He failed. He failed. But when God went with him, or more theologically correct, before him, he prevailed. It was God who exercised his mighty power and rescued the Hebrews from the clutches of Pharaoh. It was God who summoned the forces of nature in the animal kingdom against Pharaoh, against Egypt. He used bugs. It was God who used Aaron and Moses' stabs as lightning rods for his divine power. God was Israel's deliverer. And yet, Stephen's hearers had assigned too much ability, giftedness, and glory to Moses. They developed legends about him. It reached the level of idolatry. Because of that, any portrayal of Moses that fell short of his legendary status was considered blasphemous. To exalt Jesus above Moses was considered blasphemous. Without a hint of disrespect towards Moses, because Stephen honored him, Stephen exalted Jesus above him and above everyone else who had come, all the forefathers. That is what Christians are supposed to do. That is what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and the prophets did. They exalted the coming Messiah. Their entire hope was in him. And that is what Stephen does. He doesn't dishonor Moses by keeping Moses in his proper place. He teaches Moses from a biblical perspective. As maybe some sort of foreshadow of the coming Christ in some examples, but more than anything, a herald of his coming. And that was considered blasphemy because these people had built him up into this idolatrous figure. He glowed when he was born. He was born circumcised. He was the greatest of all of Egypt's generals and married some princess. All of these stories and things that are not contained within their own Bible. Now, after describing the finer and probably familiar points of Moses, Stephen begins to make his point. Look at 35 to 36. He says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. We see here, or what we see here, is a constant pattern in Israel's history, spiritual pride coupled with spiritual ignorance that causes them to reject the deliverers God sends to them. The religious leaders of Stephen's day used to actually boast, and this is crazy, they actually used to boast that if they had lived during the days of their forefathers, they would not have taken part in the shedding of the prophet's blood, Matthew 23, 30. Very interesting that they would make this boast. Oh, if we had lived back in those days, we would have never handled Moses the way that the other people did. 
We would have never dealt with Joseph so treacherously and sold him out. We would have never handled Isaiah and sawn him in two and done all these other things. We would have known without a shadow of a doubt that these men were ordained and called by God. Therefore, we would have aligned ourselves with them and done what is right. This is the kind of boastings that they made quite regularly. In fact, Jesus rebuked them, calling them a brood of vipers for their arrogance. Jesus knew that they were hypocrites and that they were going to kill, reject and kill him, and so therefore he knew that they were no different than their forefathers. Some have even argued that if Jesus had been Israel's true deliverer, this is a typical Jewish argument made today by their own apologists, by their own rabbis and apologists. They argue that if Jesus had been Israel's true deliverer, there is no way the people would have missed him. As Stephen points out, however, they rejected both Joseph, Joseph and Moses. This was their typical response to those God sent to deliver them. And the rejection of Jesus proves that the Sanhedrin would have made the same mistakes as their forefathers if they had lived back then. The fact that they were trying to stop Stephen and the apostles proves Stephen's point. Why is Stephen in front of them? Because they're trying to put an end to his gospel preaching, which is the proclamation that the Messiah has victoriously come, right? They are resisting God on every front here. Every time the gospel goes forth, the Sanhedrin interferes, bringing its proponents and preachers before them, trying to stop them. That alone is evidence that they have resisted God throughout the centuries and ultimately resisted Him and opposed Him through rejecting and murdering Jesus. If they had lived back then, they'd have done the same thing. Stephen reminds them that the Moses that the Hebrews rejected was the same Moses that was visited by an angel at the burning bush and the same Moses who did what? Even though he was rejected, who led them out of Egypt by performing many wonders and signs. And he was the same Moses that was with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then he gets to 37. He reminds them of one of Moses' own prophecies. I would venture to say that this is probably the most important prophecy that Moses may have ever made. What does he remind them of? Look at 37. This is the Moses, okay? This is the Moses that you rejected. This is the Moses who was the deliverer. This is the Moses who followed them out or led them out into the wilderness because they were still disobedient. This Moses. He says, this is the same Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, Moses proclaimed before the gathered Israelites that a prophet like himself would come to lead the Israelites in the future. Moses was speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus. Listen to these similarities between Moses and Jesus. I have nine. You may want to write them down, but I'm going to go quickly. But you can always download our notes on our website and get them there. Listen to these similarities. Last week, we made a bunch of parallels between Joseph and, and Jesus. Now, listen to these between Moses and Jesus. Moses and Jesus were what? Rejected by their own people. 
yeah, the first attempt, Moses was completely rejected. And then as he was delivering them and wandering in the desert, they still rejected him to some degree. They rejected his decrees. They rejected the law that he had brought and, and all of these things. Sure, they agreed uh, as a whole. And then later they built a, you know, they did certain things and abandoned the law. And when Moses was away for a period, they were supposed to be waiting on him. He was away for a period. They built an idol and worshipped him. I mean, they just... Yeah, at some point they listened to him and followed him out of Egypt, but then they groaned the whole time that they wanted to go back. And then they made an idol, and then they did all these things. So did they oppose Moses? Absolutely. Absolutely. They rejected Moses, and they rejected Jesus, did they not? Moses and Jesus were threatened by authorities, were they not? Pharaoh rose up against Moses, was going to strike him down and kill him for the murder that he had committed. The authorities of Jesus' day, the Sanhedrin, threatened him and even killed him. Moses and Jesus left the glories and luxuries of a better place for the sake of their people. Did they not? Moses forsook Egypt. Jesus forsook heaven. Heaven to come. To come rescue his people. To save his people. They're one and the same in a way. Moses and Jesus spent time in the wilderness, did they not? Who was tempted? Who was tempted for what? Forty days. Who was away for 40 years? Look at the parallels. Amazing, amazing, amazing. They both spent time in the wilderness. Moses and Jesus worked signs and wonders. Both of them had miraculous power. In fact, Jesus had 10 trillion, and there's no comparison. He did things right through himself. God orchestrated this power and, and delivered it right through him, and most of the time it came through Moses' staff, not through his own hands. Interesting. But they worked signs and wonders. Moses and Jesus were uh, deliverers. Moses in some way, shape, and form. Absolutely it was God who did all the delivering, but he used Moses as his vessel as his human ambassador during this time. And so Moses was in some way a deliverer. We know that it was God ultimately. But Jesus was a deliverer, was he not? Is a deliverer. Delivered me from sin 10 years ago. Delivered countless people during the first century church and throughout all of history and all of you who know Jesus. He is a deliverer and not just a physical one. Does he deliver us from our physical ailments? Certainly he does at times, but more importantly, he delivers us from our sin and spiritual death. So they were both deliverers and Jesus still is. Moses is not anymore. Moses and Jesus met with God on a mountain. It just seems so unimportant and trivial, but it's not. Moses went to Sinai to what he perceived as a holy place. And it was a holy place because God was there. But he went there regularly to meet God, or at least a couple of times. Well, how often did Jesus go off to the top of a mountain to pray? How often did he leave uh, the ministry for a moment and that small group that he had of 12 around him? He went, uh, prayed often on the Mount of Olives and other places. And so he met with his father in prayer on mountaintops. Interesting parallel. Moses and Jesus issued laws and ordinances. Moses brought what we call or know as the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and a whole cadre of more when he came down, and after that, and some time went, and he gave more ordinances. 
oh, well, Jesus didn't come giving laws and ordinances. You're wrong. He did. He commanded us to uphold the royal law, love God and love others. Did he not? Jesus affirmed the law, fulfilled the law, and issued the law in its whole way. All of the Ten Commandments are love God, four of them, and then the other six are love others. And so Jesus gave the law as Moses gave the law. Do these things. Very interesting. Both were lawgivers. They both gave ordinances. And Moses and Jesus served as shepherds to their people. Moses shepherded the Israelites for a long time. Jesus is a shepherd the great shepherd to his people. He leads us, and he is the one who leads us into Psalm 23 and all those things. Why? For his namesake. Both of them served as shepherds. Jesus is still the shepherd of his people, of his church, the head and the shepherd. The head shepherd will say. Very interesting parallels. Now, Philip, who later became one of Jesus' disciples, testified to who Jesus is. He said this to his friend Nathaniel. In John 1.45, he said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Very interesting that this humble man of Philip was able to make the parallel. Obviously, it was through divine revelation, but he says that, Hey, we found the one that Moses talked about, Nathaniel. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and how did goofball Nathaniel respond? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Erlemart? Can anything good come from Keys? Yes, they can, because I know Aaron. He's a good man, right? Amen. Can anything good come from Cedar Rapids? That's where I'm from. from and corn can come from there, and if you can't eat corn, then it's no good. But he literally said that, but, you know, Philip made the parallel. Philip knew. Philip said, man, we're... We're we're interacting with, we're seeing, we're experiencing the one that Moses said would come in his great likeness. After Jesus fed 5,000 in John 6, 14, the people began to exclaim, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The people were referencing Deuteronomy 18, 15. They believed that Jesus was the Moses-like, Moses-esque prophet, and they hailed him as such, it wasn't only a matter of time before their hearts turned, unfortunately. The apostle Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Moses-like prophet that had come when he preached in Solomon's portico right after healing the lame beggar. That was part of his sermon in Acts 3.22. Moses said this guy would come. He's come. And guess what? You killed him. Ooh, that was him? Yeah, that was him great number of people turned in repentance and faith. Tragically, had the Sanhedrin been willing to consider the facts, they could not have missed the parallels between their nation's history and their behavior towards Jesus, nor could they have missed the parallels between Jesus and Moses. I think it's fairly safe to say that Stephen has done a pretty good job, or he did a pretty good job of defending himself against the allegation of blasphemy against Moses. Did he not? 
He held them in his right light. He taught truthfully about what their own scriptures say about him. And he taught that he, or he said things in such a way that showed great honor to Moses. Because Moses, even from a biblical sense, I think deserves that honor. In fact, Christ himself impresses that honor upon his people. And so he has done a fantastic job of showing that I'm not a blasphemer of Moses. I am not against Moses or the law. You know, again, his gospel message was, these things have been fulfilled in the one whom ye have rejected, in Christ. I think it's safe to say that he's done a pretty good job or did a pretty superb job of conveying Christ through the story of Moses. These are the things that he did through this great sermon. He did the same thing with Joseph and made those parallels and showed that, you know, and with Abraham. And man, I don't blaspheme God. I understand God is, is the orchestrator of all redemptive history. And, and he began to show the world that through Abraham. And he spoke that to Abraham and made these. He's just showing his great reverence and respect and love for God you know, and, and understanding of Israel's history and how God has worked in redemptive history. And then, and then he's showing that, man, I honor Moses as you guys do. Maybe not to the same level because he's more important to you than Jesus ever will be or was. And so he's done a fantastic job of defending himself. More importantly, the truth claims of the gospel. In closing, I'd like to challenge each of us a number of ways. Isn't that a great text? Every, I say that every week. I say, man, this is the best one. This is the best text. And that's a dumb thing to say because the one before it's the best and the one before that and the one at the beginning at Genesis 1 and then Revelation. And it's just like it's all just God's word is just so amazing, you know. And, and, I, and I always feel every week that feel you're getting like 1.2% of it. And I'm like, dang it, you know? It's like, wow, it's just that extraordinary. And just even every time I get just a little bit of it, man, it's so nourishing to my soul. It's just so good. I love his word. In closing, I'd like to say this. These are some pretty compelling truths, I think, that we've heard today. I didn't make them. God's word did. And yet there could be some or someone present here that still shares the position of the Sanhedrin. You've heard the word of God state its case for the messiahship of Jesus quite plainly through the example of Moses. And yet you're not convinced. Maybe your reason for not being convinced has less to do with what you've heard and more to do with your love of sin. That was clearly the case with the Sanhedrin. Those men were filled with religious pride, filled with greed, filled with a desire to control, and filled with a great lust for power, amongst other things. Great question becomes, what are you filled with? What are you filled with? Why do you reject the truth claims of the gospel? Why do you reject what you've heard today? Is it because you love your sin? Is that why?
Could it be that Jesus is calling you to repent and believe in Him at this very moment? The one whom you've heard about. What are you waiting for? Last week, the ending thought was, why don't you leave Canaan and come to the presence of the Lord? That's what Jacob and his family did. Oh, yeah, they came to Joseph to be saved, but the parallel is there. Every one of us dwelt in Canaan. In fact, I like to visit it once in a while. Canaan represents my old life, my old ways, my old tendencies, my old sins. I far too often journey back there. Every day I need to be delivered from that place. There could be some here that have never made that journey, that you're still there that you're still embracing those sins and those encumbrances and things that keep you from knowing this wonderful, loving, gracious, spectacular deliverer named Christ Jesus. Rescues you from sin and the guilt of sin. He has an eternal plan for you to be in His glorious presence where there is no pain, only elation pure satisfaction. Friend, I bid you to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. What are you waiting for? And then there's the rest of us, those who are already in Christ. What might we be able to take away from today's lesson from this great text? I have some ending questions and thoughts. Are you content, Christians, in Egypt? Does your love for the easy life keep you from stepping out in faith, from taking risks, or worse, from doing what God has called you to do? The Israelites struggled with this, did they not? If God hadn't orchestrated events the way that He had, they'd probably still be there because they desired comfort and ease and possessions and things. Yes, God brings many of those things into our lives that we enjoy, but how often is it that those things prohibit us from responding to the immediate calls of God to step out in faith and to do things, to do something for Him, to do something for His namesake, to do something for His glory, to advance the gospel. Quite frankly, as a believer of 10 years, it's a little easier just to sit still in Egypt. In many ways, the last church that I worked with with became in Egypt. Decent money, great benefits, excellent education for my children with great men of God. An easy pattern of living. A ministry that had become simple and easy for me to manage and lead because I had all these infrastructures and things that others and I built. It had become Egypt. Very comfortable. 
God sent me a deliverer. <laughs> it's not that that place was an inherently a bad place. It's a good church. But God gave me a great thorn in my flesh of discontent for the norm, the way things were. It began to erode and eat up all of my comfort there. It's really interesting how God orchestrated events in my own life. How many of you have experienced that? God will get you to where he aims to get you. At the beginning, sometimes you do it a little kicking and screaming. But that's not the way his will works. It's a joy to be in his will. The great question for us is, are we content with where we're at? Overly content. It's manageable. It's comfortable. It's safe. Is that what we've been called to, friends? What does it mean to take up the cross? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you'll have to take up comfort. No. Christian life should be the most exhilarating, daring, challenging, joyous life there is. In America, we've made it just something that we do. Something that we do was never intended for that, friends. Never. Second thing, Moses by faith turned away from the lap of luxury to fight the injustices that were being perpetuated against his people. How have you by faith fought against these injustices that we see Satan perpetuate every moment on the lives of those around us? The way you fight that is by bringing the truth of God's word, the gospel, How have you by faith given of your time, talent, and treasure to advance the gospel, which ultimately rescues people from the oppression and injustice of the devil? He just destroys lives moment by moment. And we have a message of salvation that redeems and rescues people from his destructive power. Because we're in a spiritual war, friends. Oh, yeah, there's ailments and illnesses and wars and lots of physicalities. But this is a spiritual war. The, spirit, the spiritual aspect of it governs all other things, the physicality, emotional, everything. He turned away from the comfort and the lap of luxury to fight the injustice of the devil by proclaiming the glorious gospel. This one, maybe you've attempted to serve God and yet somehow it didn't work out and now you're a little discouraged and even maybe a little disenfranchised. Maybe those around you didn't receive you the way that you hoped they would. I say this because I saw this all the time. People began over at my last workplace to engage in the ministry and things didn't work out the way that they desired and some of them have left the church. Could it be that the reason why things didn't work out is because maybe you and all of us have done this, got a little ahead of ourselves, that maybe we engaged a little prematurely and God had more things to teach us, to equip us, to train us? Do we not see this great principle in the life of Moses? 
He engaged, and it fell apart. And then it was 40 years of deprogramming, of shepherding. Friend, don't give up. Maybe God has more to teach you, and that's why things didn't work out. Maybe you need to be like Moses and spend some time in the wilderness with the Lord where He can mold and shape you. Seek the Lord for wisdom, skill, and one thing that we're never good at, and that's timing, His timing. Lastly, as Christians, do we realize that our bodies are holy ground? Do we realize that our bodies are the Lord's temple? What sort of irreverent things have we allowed to come in and to take up residency in the Lord's special place? Moses had to remove his shoes. What do we need to remove from ourselves at this very moment? We all wrestle with sin and temptation and patterns in these things. I believe the Lord is beckoning us to evaluate ourselves, to allow Him to expose these things and to allow Him, to humbly allow Him to remove them. That we may continue in the way in which He desires. Ultimately, that perpetuates this incredible joy for our lives when we walk in holiness. The body of Christ is holy ground. The church is holy ground. Those who belong to Him are holy ground. Our bodies together make up His wondrous temple. May we purge His temple of those wicked things, those things that we have allowed to come in. As we break for communion now, I'd like for us just to ponder these things that we've heard. Communion is the best reminder that I know of that says that the work of Christ was finished on a cross, that He bled and died there, and the work is done in Him, that we do not have to go about our lives earning our salvation. We merely need to rest in Him. But before we take of communion, before we take of the elements that represent that great finished work of Christ, we must spend just a moment with Jesus, letting Him search our hearts and exposing our sin, confessing those things. We need to live confessional lives, my friends. Not just on Sundays during communion, but every day, every moment. When sin arises, we confess. So may we do that together, and you can take the elements at your own leisure, and I will warn you that if you're not in Christ, if you do not believe in Him, please abstain. It's for the Lord's people. But enjoy this time with Him. Father, thank You for Your truth, for Your Word, God, that is a double-edged sword. Laid me open like a, I don't know, like nothing this week. I'm a man who desperately needs Your grace, Your mercy every moment. God, help me to live in it. Help me to know that the work is finished in you. Help my brothers and sisters here to know that you have completed this great work on their behalf, on our behalf. You're calling us to rest in you, to relinquish control, to submit, 
May we do so, God, humbly. Bring to mind those encumbrances and sins and things that um, mess things up. Help us to remember those other things that you've taught us about stepping out in faith and taking risk and supporting your local church by forsaking the absolute comfort of life and giving more. That's what we're called to do. That's a way that we can advance the gospel. Father, thank you for this time. May it be sweet. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Help yourselves, friends.